Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Michael Kiyobasa, president of the Kiyobasa Provision Company for over 33 years. It's a family-owned company that produces smoked meats, founded by his grandfather in 1945. Michael took over the business in 1987 and experienced massive growth and now distributes in 48 states. He has a management approach that turned the company around and is the highest grossing premium sausage manufacturer in Texas. All right. So, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, glad to be here today. So, you've been involved in the family, uh, the business for a while. Tell me a fond childhood memory. Gosh, I got a lot of them. (laughs) I started probably going down to the plant with my dad when I was a little kid. I would tag along with him when he would go down on the weekends or actually sometimes after dinner and take sausage out of the smokehouse and stuff like that. And so I got, I have a lot of great memories. And one of the, one of the greatest was when I, I used to go in there and he'd pull some sausage out of the smokehouse and I would grab a link right out of the smokehouse. <laughs> Boy, there's just nothing better than, than eating sausage right out of the smokehouse. Oh, very nice. Was it the, uh, the plan all along to join the company or, or did you warm up to it? I worked there growing up, worked there during summers and breaks when I was in high school. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, but, but when I was junior at SMU, I took an entrepreneurial or an entrepreneurship course and really got bit by the entrepreneurial bug. And at that point, I was like, well, this, is, this could be an option. Mm. Unfortunately, my plan to go back right into the business after college was thwarted by my father, who said, not so fast, (laughs) 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 which is actually a pretty good, pretty good point after all. So what did you go into? So I got my degree in finance and went to work for a a bank in San Antonio as a credit analyst. So Mm. I was in commercial banking and it was a great experience for me. I learned a lot. I got a, had a chance to really do an analysis on companies that were doing really well and needed capital for growth and companies that were struggling that uh, needed capital to stay alive. So it was a really great experience. I tell people it was like, it was my, it was my MBA. Mm. Case study after case study after case study of how bankers think and how to run a successful business. Mm. What were some key points that you pulled out you learned a lot but what are the, what are the key points that you yeah well i was really really fortunate because i i was a credit analyst in the mid 1980s which was way before you were born <laughs> it was it was a time of extreme growth in mm-hmm. texas the early 80s were robust and then the late 80s so i came in on the tail end of the of the, of the boom and then i was on the very beginning of the bust and all the savings and loan uh, collapsed in, in Texas. Uh, our bank eventually failed. Mm. A lot of our customers uh, went through a tough time. So it was a really interesting time. I, after 
1987, kind of after the, the, I could see the writing on the wall of my father and said, hey, I would like to have a chance now. <laughs> when they froze my salary at $19,000 a year. <laughs> I said, hey, maybe I need to, you need to give me a shot at this. Now. So what was the uh, company like when you uh, joined it? Well, it was very small. It was a, it was, it was primarily a hog and cattle slaughtering. We had about 25 employees. We did make sausage, but it was about 10% of our revenue mm. at the time. So a little bit less than a million dollars a year in revenue. And it was really a really, really focused on the hog and cattle slaughtering side of our business. Yeah. My understanding is you, you kind of spearheaded transforming that. How did you approach that? Well, from my banking background, I, you know, I knew that if we were going to grow the business and it was going to be big enough to support both my father and me, I, I knew we had to focus on the, the sausage side of the business. And I really had a vision to grow the brand and build the brand. At that time, when I joined, we were pretty, very, it was a very small sausage brand. We were well known in, in the areas we were in, which was the south side and the west side of San, and the east side of San Antonio, but, but we didn't sell to any major grocery store chains. We were very, we had a great product. We just didn't sell a lot of it. And my, my vision was to really take that brand and, and grow it, really grow it nationally. And it took a while, <laughs> but, we, but we got there. <laughs> yeah. Well, what were the steps? I mean, brands are tough to grow, right? I mean, they take a lot yeah. of uh, money. Like, how did, yeah. you, how did you approach that? So we spent no money on marketing back in the day, but... Uh, so on the weekends, I would go out and I'd hand out samples at grocery stores. We did get lucky, and, and we got into about five big grocery stores in San Antonio. They were part of a larger, much larger chain. And on the weekends, I'd go out and I'd hand out samples, and people would come to me, and they would taste the product, and they would buy it. It's kind of like what you would do at a farmer's market now. And it was really great experience for me. It was great initial feedback, and we sell a lot of sausage, and and so we did that for a while. I went back to that, that customer, that buyer, and I asked for some more stores to get distribution in. And, and he said, look, you know, you're doing a great job. You're, you're growing your sales. But I, I've got too much sausage in my set in my store already. So I can't really add, it, add you. He said, keep doing what you're doing and come back to me in six months. So I did. People kept telling me, wow, this is the best sausage I've ever eaten, Michael. And we'd sell a lot. and then. I went back six months later and he gave me the same answer and I got, I got pretty upset, frustrated. And, and so I went to a local radio show host. This is back in the early nineties. Mm. And his name was Carl Wigglesworth, which is a great name for a guy oh. on the radio. Oh yeah. And he had a talk radio in, in San Antonio. And, and, and I said, Carl, this is who I am. And this is what I do. And I, I'd like for you to come down to the plant and I'll show you how we make sausage. I'll, Meet you can meet Dad and you can meet Eli, our our sausage maker, and and I'm going to give you some sausage. And then if this is something that you can, you think you can sell on the radio, I might be able to. I might want to buy a few ads on your on your station. So he came down, did the tour, met everybody, took some product home. The next day, he called me up and said, "Wow, Michael, this is the best sausage I've ever eaten. I can I can sell this." And I said, "Okay, Carl, here's the deal." First of all, I can only afford to buy two radio spots a week on your show. And I want you to do the spots. 
And so these were like those live ads that you, you hear talk radio guys do. I said, here that you can talk about the family. You can talk about the, the small batch process. You can talk about all that. But here are the two things that I want you to hammer home when you talk about us on the radio. The first is if you don't think it's the best sausage you've ever eaten, call Michael and he'll give you your money back. <laughs> the second thing that I want you to hammer home is if you can hear my voice, which he broadcasting on a 50,000 watt radio station, covered 25 counties in South Texas. I said, if you can hear your voice, I want you to tell people they can find it at their local grocery store, which is a bald-faced lie. I was in five grocery stores at the time. And my dad wanted to fire me at this. You know, he was like, boy, if we don't make our biggest prospects mad at us for telling people they can find our product at their, at their stores, we're going to go broke refunding everybody's money. <laughs> I said, trust me. I know what I'm doing here. I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but it worked out. And, and in a couple of weeks later, after we started running the ads, I got a call from the, from the buyer. And he said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting some calls for your product. Can you handle these stores? And I said, sure, I can. <laughs> I had a tiny little packaging machine that we were working off of. And with no prospects of really upgrading that equipment. So... I took those stores, it was about 10 stores. And then a couple of weeks later, he called me and said, man, Michael, I don't know what's going on, but I'm getting store calls from all over San Antonio. Can you handle that? That was about 35 stores. I said, sure, I can. I can handle that. And then about a month later, he said, boy, I don't know what's going on, but I'm getting calls for your product all over the place. I'm just going to authorize you for the whole company. Can you handle it? Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, fake it till you make it type of thing. So I was working pretty hard packaging sausage and delivering it. And it was pretty fun. It was a great time. Very fun experience. The, the flip side of that story is that, sure enough, we started getting calls from customers who said, Hey, I heard your ad on the radio. And the minute my dad would hear that on the phone, he would say, Hold on just a second. Let me let you talk to Michael. So he would put it on hold and, and I'd grab on the phone and, and I would talk with these customers and it was a real joy. We ended up refunding their money back, which they couldn't believe that we'd actually do that. Yeah. And, and sometimes I would double the refund just to give them a chance to buy another package of sausage on us. And, and the rest is history. I mean, I, to this day, I still try to answer every single call that comes wow. in. Wow. And we've got a team in place that's in. T still is good today. If it's not the best you've ever eaten, give me a call. I'll give you your money back. Wow, you stayed very uh, consistent. And that's very nice. Now, I, I heard you uh, mention in a speech that I think uh, 2009, you, you had some sort of kind of realization. You were growing quickly. Mm. You know, you started at a million. You're growing quickly. I think it was roughly around 20. And then you hit some sort of wall. Can you, can you tell me about that? No, it's a, it's probably the most important story of my professional life, I would say. Yeah, it was 2009, and I was actually on vacation with my wife. I was We were in Mexico, and it was early one morning, very spiritual guy. So I get up every morning, and I have a, my morning conversation with God. And so I was talking to him that morning, and I was particularly frustrated. We had we were growing our business, but the, the top line was growing, but the bottom line wasn't. I was really getting to be on the verge of burnout. And 
I was talking to him and I said, look, I've done it my way for 22 years. I think I'm going to give you a shot at it now. And that's literally what I said. And just kind of a moment of surrender, if you will. But it was also a moment where I opened up myself to consciously open myself up to new ideas, new ways of thinking. And about a, nothing happened right away, but about a year later, I was hosting a retreat for my YPO. That stands for Young Presence Organization, my YPO chapter. And we had a resource that we brought in named Jim Warner. And at the end of that retreat, Jim asked all of us an unusual question. He said, I want you to name an unconscious commitment that you have. And I looked at him and I said, Jim, that's pure psychobabble. I'm perfectly conscious of every commitment I have. And he said, Michael, I've known you for two days and I can tell you are full of unconscious commitments. (laughs) So I said, wow, well, let me think about it for a second. And I did. And I said, okay, well, if I have one unconscious commitment, it's that I've got to have my finger in every area of our business. He said, great, write that down. And then he asked me, he said, how do you do your unconscious commitment? I said, well, I'm the sales guy. I'm the marketing guy. If there's a problem with production, I jump in. I'm the procurement guy. He said, great, write all that down. So I did. And then he asked, what's at risk if you change? And I said, well, loss of income if people make a mistake, loss of control. or You know, it makes me feel like I'm in control with all this, you know, doing all this stuff. He says, great, write that down. And he, then he asked me, he said, is it working for you? And I said, no, it's not working for me. And I said, our top line's growing, but our bottom line's not. I'm frustrated. I'm probably not a very good leader. I know I could be a better husband and father. And he said, great, write that down. <laughs> and so I did. And he asked me, are you willing to change? And I said, yes, I am. So he walked me through writing a clean commit, what he called a clean commitment statement which was essentially working on the business rather than in the business. So I went back from that, that retreat the very next day, and I I walked up to our uh, VP of production's office. His name was Ishmael. Is Ishmael. He's still there. (laughs) And I said, Ishmael, from now on, I don't want to have anything to do with production. If something's going on and you need me, you can come get me, but otherwise you guys handle it. And he looked at me and he said, Michael, it's about time. (laughs) <laughs> and so I, at that point, I knew that I was on to something. And then I slowly, I went to a young lady that I'd brought in for our quality assurance team. And she has a master's degree in, in meat science. And I said, Stacy, how would you like to start buying our meat for us? You're eminently qualified. I can teach you how we do it. And she said, I would love to. And so slowly, I offloaded all of the elements of our uh, all, all of the tasks, almost all the tasks that I was doing to other people, delegated them out. And that allowed me to uh, really focus on the culture of our company, which needed a lot of attention. Great. Now, what sort of uh, resources you pull into after you sort of delegated? I, I, you mentioned a few, few things, uh, I think, uh, value-based leadership and, yes. and also think the great game of uh, business, I think, if I'm correct. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So when I offloaded all those tasks, I I had some time on my hands. And so I started taking out some team members to lunch. These are guys on the floor. We had about 75 team members at that time. And I was just asking, I really wanted to get to know them on a personal basis. 
get to know them and their families and their kind of their story. And, and we did that for a little while. And then they always would bring the, the, the conversation back to the company. And I started to hear a common theme that, Michael, I love, I love working for you. I love working for your family. But my boss is a jerk. <laughs> what I learned, what I discovered is that in our growth from a million to 20 million in sales, we promoted a lot of people into leadership positions without giving them any leadership training. And that created a lot of dysfunctional leadership. And that's why we were making a lot of mistakes. That's why our, our top line was growing, but our bottom line wasn't. And so I quickly realized we needed to find a leadership development program. So I went to our HR director and I said, look, Rosalinda, let's figure something out here. And we looked at various leadership development programs, but the one that really intrigued us was values-based leadership. Values-based leadership is a Ken Blanchard model that he developed in the 1980s. And it just happened that one of the early adopters of values-based leadership was a San Antonio company named Holt Equipment. And so we contacted Holt. They had actually created a leadership development subsidiary that taught values-based leadership. Mm. And so they're the head of that group, Guy Klumpner, and just asked him about it. And, and he led me to one of the companies that used values-based leadership and one of their clients called Luck, the Luck companies based out of Richmond, Virginia. And so I called Charlie Luck, who was a fellow YPOer, and I said, hey, tell me about this values-based leadership. And, and for the next 30 minutes, he told me on how committed I was to values-based leadership and how tough I was. And I was like, come on, Charlie, what's the deal? You know, I mean, I just want to know where the landmines are, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And and he said, Michael, I got to be honest with you. If you decide to do, to take on values-based leadership and institute that in your business, it will be the hardest thing you ever do. And I said, really? Why is that? And he said, Michael, values-based leadership isn't about changing others or fixing others. It's about fixing yourself. And it's about working on yourself. And if you're willing to do that, you'll be successful with implementing values-based leadership. It starts with you. And so I said, wow, that sounds great. It sounds pretty intimidating what it sounded like. But he said, come up to Richmond, spend a day with me. I'll show you what this looks like. And then you can make a decision. So I did that, spent the day with Charlie and his team, immediately fell in love with it came back committed to instituting values-based leadership, which we did in 2010, in this late summer of 2012. And we did that by taking, by really addressing what is our vision, mission, and core values in the company. And I call it, I like to call it the why we exist, the what we do, and the how we do it. And it took us six months to really identify what those three elements were because I didn't want this coming from me. I didn't want it coming from my family. I didn't want it coming from the senior team. I wanted it coming from all of us. And so we got the family, we got the senior team, and we got all of the team members involved in really defining what our why, why we exist as a company, which we, and it can't be to make money. Our purpose is to enrich the lives of everybody we touch. And we do the, the what is we create, remember, we, we make premium, high-quality sausage and food products 
that create memorable eating experiences. And the how we do that is through our core values of integrity, teamwork, commitment, and continuous improvement. And when we did that, we put that on a big poster board and we put that in every production office or every office, every production room in the company. We put it both in English and Spanish. And I went in and I told our team members, I said, all you really need to know is what's on this poster here. Forget the handbook. This is what you really need to know. You can make a $100,000 mistake. But if you're in line with our core values, you're safe. You can make a $100 mistake. And if you're not in line with these, you're out of here. And what that did is create enormous clarity for everybody in our organization over what was important, what is important. And that clarity just, it it made sure that everybody was on the same page. The other thing we did that's a big part of values-based leadership is we started teaching the five values-based leadership tools, which are DISC, which is a personality profile and a communication tool, situational leadership, principles of persuasion, conflict resolution, and influencing. For many of our team members, it was the first time they had ever been exposed to any kind of training at all, and they soaked it up. The great thing about these tools is that they're also transferable to outside the work workplace. So it's funny, I, after a couple of these workshops, some of my team members would come up to me and say, boy, Michael, that conflict resolution really worked on my wife <laughs> <laughs> or my kid. <laughs> it was great. So, but what that all that did is it created a really succinct and easy way for us to have very difficult conversations in our organization. And it was uh, that combined with the, the clarity around the core values just really allowed our team to take on bold initiatives, gave them the confidence to take on bold initiatives, fail fast, and really lean into discomfort so that we could grow as a team. Wow. So, I mean, I think success came very quickly, right? Once you, once you pull people together with that. Well, it, it did and it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we got together. We got, we got really, it, it was great from a culture perspective, but we were still missing an element. Mm. We had brought in, and right about the same time, we launched our, our values-based leadership. So we launched the values-based leadership in the early fall, late summer, early fall of 2012. Earlier in the early part of 2012, I brought in my first real big hire from the outside, mm. Chuck Harris. Chuck uh, was VP of sales at Tyson. He uh, joined our little company. We were about $25 million in sales at the time. And I sold him on the vision of, of where I wanted to take this company. And, and Chuck jumped right in. And we started growing 25% a year. And our little company wasn't ready for that. We did not have the systems and processes in place to handle that kind of growth. And it, I tell people, it was like driving a 1965 Volkswagen Beetle, 125 miles an hour, and it just locked up. It just, it just locked up. And while our top line was growing and our bottom line was actually starting to improve, we were running out of cash. 
because that kind of growth just sucks cash. And so there were two conversations going on in our business at the time. One was, hey, Michael, we need to start thinking about building another plant to keep up with our growth. And the one inside my head was, hey, we need to start building cash. And so I reached out to a guy named Vern Harnish. Vern is a well-known author and founder of a company called Gazelles, which is a consultant group for high-growth companies. I emailed Vern and I said, Vern, this is my situation. Do you have any advice? And in 10 minutes, in 10 minutes, he emailed me back and he said, Michael, you need to go buy a book called The Great Game of Business. And then you need to go up and visit Jack Stack in Springfield, Missouri. And so I did that and, and I bought the book. I had it delivered the next day. I was actually going on a father-daughter fishing trip with some other of my buddies and, and their daughters. And I read it on the plane over and back, came back, landed the next plant the next morning or next Monday and went up to a young man that, that works for us that's a complete opposite of me. He's one of the sharpest guys you'll ever meet. But from a personality perspective, he sees the world differently than I do. And so he compliments me very well. And I said, I call him MJ. His name's Michael Johnson. I said, MJ, look, I need you to come up with me. We're going to go to Missouri and go visit these guys in two weeks. Can you handle that? And he goes, sure. I you know, really didn't have much of a choice. And the poor guy, he was a young father. I think he'd had a baby about three months before that. So, <laughs> but I said, you're coming with me. So we went up to, we were actually going to St. Louis because they had a the grand game of business with having their annual gathering in St. Louis that year. And we met a lot of the, the people who were practitioners of the great game of business. We met Jack and every night MJ and I would go to the bar and go grab a beer and talk about what we were doing or what we had heard from that day's events. And we realized that the great game of business aligned with our core values so much that if we didn't bring it into our company, we'd be violating our own core values and have to fire ourselves. <laughs> so anyway, needless to say, we brought it in. We hired a great game of business coach and, and we launched the great game of business in October of 2013. I was really, really nervous mm. when, we, when we launched it because the company was not in, in condition. We had, we had come off a couple of months where you know, our, our sales forecast had been called down. And so we were having on product and we had to fire sales some product and it was a month. And I was worried that some of the talent that I just brought on to help take us to the next level was going to head for the, head for the Hills. Those that stuck around were going to be paralyzed by fear. But when I opened up the books, just the opposite happened the team started to brainstorm around ideas to save money, improve processes, reduce waste. Mm -hmm. It's just the transparency of opening up the books just magnified the trust in our organization, which unleashed creativity. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed as a leader. And we quickly turned the, the business around and it was an amazing amazing turnaround. Wow. No, that's, uh, that's great. Now, I mean, ex explain uh, more about the, the system that you implemented. What's involved in the system, the, the nuts and bolts? 
you're really, the great game of business is all around complete transparency of your financials to everybody in your organization so that they have a better understanding of how they impact the financial performance of the company. Mm. We instituted weekly huddles where we would actually forecast out the next three months, everything from sales to cost of sales, to cost of goods sold, to overhead expenses. The other thing we would, and we assigned line owners for each one and, and you would have to call your number. We also instituted these things called mini games. And mini games are designed to address a specific opportunity within the organization, whether it's a process improvement or something else that is an opportunity to, to improve profitability. And so we unleashed a bunch of mini games out there. And we also then began teaching, really just teaching people how to read a financial statement. Mm. And we did this both in English and Spanish. And again, these are transferable tools that people could relate to if you bring it to how they handle their personal finances. So for instance, I'll give you an example on inventory. One of my buyers, or, or these are early days, came in to me and said, hey, I just made a great deal on, on boxes. I got them for whatever, a nickel less than what they were going to, what they normally cost. Hey, great. Tell me more about that. He goes, well, yeah, the only deal was I had to buy a three-month supply. And I go, okay, well, let me, that's great. I, I appreciate the transparency and the honesty there. Let me, let me ask you something. When you go to the grocery store and you see something that you buy normally, on on ad, do you buy three months worth of it? And he goes, no. I said, well, why? And he said, well, I don't want to tie up my cash. <laughs> well, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's simple things like that yeah. that you can really use real world experiences to teach this stuff. And it's not contrary to popular opinion. It's not rocket science. People and people are a lot smarter than you think they are. They get it if you explain it to them. And so, so it's really been fun to watch the team lean into that learning, understand it. And it's really, it's, it's been pretty amazing to see the impact on our team members. Now, did you roll it out at, throughout the company or just in phases, like just to, just to sort of, uh, sort of work it in? How'd that happen? Well, what we did is we rolled it out at the whole, with the whole company. We, there's only one way to do this, and it's just to, it's just to do it. And fortunately, we had a coach that we brought in with us. I am a big believer in getting help when you're doing stuff like this, whether it's launching something called like the great game of business or, or instituting a cultural shift in your, in your business. It always helps to have somebody who really knows what they're doing and, and, can, and can guide you along the process. So we, we had a coach that really helped us a lot during this. We made a lot of mistakes. I'll be honest with you. It was for a long, long time. It was two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes one step forward, two steps back. We, in fact, we, we coined a new term. We call it, we weren't forecasting. We were poor casting because <laughs> we were so bad at it. <laughs> You know what it does, though? It mm -hmm. really drives conversations that need to be had in your business. Mm. And my job as the leader of the, of the company was really to create a safe 
psychologically safe environment for our team members to ask those tough questions and and giving them that license to have that was good and you know and 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 honestly I would show up sometimes as a great leader and sometimes I would show up as not so great leader one of my favorite stories that really was a a catalyst for a big event for us came from Michael Johnson again he's on he's my VP of finance and organizational development and this was in 2017 we were having another one of those years where we were growing significantly about 25% but we had been we had been caught off guard by a, by an extreme spike in our in one of our input costs beef trimmings mm. and it went from 40 cents a pound i think something like that to $2.20 a pound Oof. about 6 weeks and in our business you can't get ahead of that you just got to eat that cost and because by the time you figure out whether it's a trend or a spike, then you got to go and figure out okay, how much you're going to go back and ask your customers for a price increase. And then it takes 30 days to get that implemented. And then it takes another 30 days to get paid for that. So by the time it's all said and done, you're 90 days into this thing. And, and, it's, and it's really painful. So we were in a pretty tough financial situation. And I guess I hadn't been showing up very well. <laughs> Michael Johnson looked at me one day and and he said, you know, Michael, you're not the easiest guy to give bad news to. <laughs> and I said, well, we need to change that. And, and what we really needed was to bring on a CFO. We were approaching $70 million in sales. And I was acting as both the CEO and CFO, which is not, I don't recommend that to any. I damn near ran it into the ground by not having a CFO next to me. And we built a hell of a brand, but we needed to start generating some cash flow. I mean, some significant good margins. And, and so that fortunately, I had a very capable guy on my advisory board named Bill Wagner, who I asked to join us full time as a CFO. And he did that in, in 2017. And he's had a remarkable impact on our business ever since. Wow. So what does the future look like? Well, the future looks really great. If I had to to really, well, I'm going to go back a little bit and I'll tell you about the future. One of the things that I think is so important for leaders of companies to understand is the culture drives everything. I didn't, I knew that intellectually. I didn't know that emotionally Mm. until I really dove into this. But the culture has allowed us to attract enormously talented people for a company our size and people that come from a lot of big companies and know a lot of things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm enormously grateful for that and grateful that I've stayed focused on the culture. I think culture will drive our growth. We are one of the fastest growing sausage brands in the country. And, and we make this really amazing dry cured bacon that is one of the fastest growing bacon items in the country. We are expanding our distribution throughout the United States and internationally. And we've got a a lot of runway in front of us. It's just a very exciting time. Most importantly, it's exciting for our team members and our, they're having more fun than they ever have, which is really fun to watch. And it's exciting for us. Great. That's fantastic. Now, yeah, you definitely uh, gave some great insight. Is there anything that I should have asked, but 
didn't? You know, not off the top of my head. Again, yeah, the culture is what drives everything. And there's really, you know, as, as I think about it, I just, there's only one thing that is this, the head of the company I really control. And that's the environment and the culture. And if your culture is health, healthy, your, your business is going to be healthy. It's going to be resilient. That's one of the best lessons I've ever had to learn along this path. The grateful that I learned it. Great. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. You bet. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.